Hey everybody, Neil Blackman, host of the Florida Basketball Hour. Welcome to uh, this episode. Um, we're going to break down Florida's loss at TCU. Uh, we will talk a little bit about um, the game against Ole Miss coming up at home. Again, another resume opportunity for Florida. Uh, it's like a broken record. Resume opportunity, Florida loss. Resume opportunity, Florida loss. So it's kind of feeling that way. Um, and then we'll, we'll take listener questions and create a little bit of a discussion about Florida's incoming recruiting class. Scotty Lewis, Trey Mann, Omar Payne, and, and probably a player to be named later. Um, so uh, thanks for listening. Just remember to, to send us um, those listening questions at, at Florida BB Hour on Twitter, at Florida BB Hour, and uh, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening again, and, and um, enjoy the show. Hey everybody, uh, Neil Blackman with Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. Um, we're going to talk about uh, Florida's loss to TCU Saturday, um, take a, a host of um, listener questions and, and try to answer them as good as we can for you. And then um, and then uh, we'll preview Florida's, you know, every game, it seems like every game, oh, big game. That's just the nature of the schedule right now. So, uh, Eric, welcome. Thoughts on the... Uh, Ole Miss game. Hey, it does feel like every game's a big one, and that's, uh, that's why it sucks to lose one like uh, like TCU. Even though I definitely have a ton of uh, a ton of respect for TCU, and I think that the fact that Florida uh, played such uh, such a good second half against them, at least for most of it, um, uh, you know, this uh, this felt like a win that they uh, they could have gotten and, and a win on the road, and uh, obviously it escaped them because they played such horrible basketball in the uh, in the first couple of minutes of the game. And, um, you know, and I wrote about this at Gator Country, and uh, it's not like he needs to be piled on much more, but it just seemed like Jalen Hudson killed any momentum they had in the, in the second half once they got the game close. Um, just uh, some really key possessions. He took some really, really ill-advised shots that um, had really, really bad outcomes. So uh, uh, not that the loss is, uh, is squarely on his shoulders, um, but um, yeah, he was, uh, he was on the floor in some, in some big situations and uh, didn't, um, didn't play well. And uh, one guy that I thought uh, did play well um, was Keontae Johnson, that you, who you and me love, obviously. But uh, it was really interesting. It seemed like um, uh, he got into foul trouble really early and then got off the floor and, you know, Florida got murdered in that first kind of stretch when he was off the floor. Um, then he got back in and Florida had a little run at the half. Then he got, you know, picked up, uh, uh, he started the half. Things uh, things went really well for Florida. Then he got in foul trouble, and then TCU brought it back. So it seemed like a lot of the stretches of good basketball were uh, were when Keontae Johnson was on the floor, and things really slipped when he was uh, when he had to get off because of foul trouble. Which is, uh, you know, you and me love him, so that's uh, not a big surprise to us. Yeah, I, look, I watched the game um, on delay on rewatch because uh, we we were playing, but. Um, I think sometimes if you watch a, a game not live, um, even if you know the outcome, you can watch it a little more critically. And that, that was certainly, you know, I certainly agree with, with Eric's point that I felt like, um, you know, Florida, Florida really slumped with Keontae off the floor. I think some of that was trouble dealing with TCU's size and length. And, and one thing I'll say about, because I want to build on the Hudson thought, 
and suggest that I think Hudson was forced into extra minutes he might not have gotten because of, of the absence of Keith Stone. And, and it sounds like a cop-out. Uh, I'm not trying to make it sound like that. <laughs> it's just that Keith Stone is big and TCU has a lot of length and size. And I think this is a game where Florida really could have used Keith um, just to kind of soften TCU up defensively. Uh, but, but even without him, you know, I think Florida had their chances and, and another one of those games where it feels like two or three plays and maybe in this one, I thought at least one, possibly two really big calls, uh, just all in against Florida. Yeah, there was a lot of, um, kind of bad luck things like that for the Gators. Um, there were some calls that I thought um, definitely did not go Florida's way. Um, I thought the way the game was officiated definitely benefited TCU. Um, but it also just seemed like there were so many, like, you know, kind of like 50-50 offensive rebounds that just barely went off a of Florida fingertip or um, yeah, just some, uh, some of those kind of uh, loose balls that uh, juggled off the hands of some Gators. And, and, and not to say, not to say that it was because like this wasn't like a, oh Kavari says fumbles the ball but just just I mean like truly bad luck a rebound caroming at a really weird angle that goes off a of Florida foot they're just uh, yeah there seemed like a whole lot of things that went some went against Florida and uh, I just feel like we say this so often unfortunately but um, uh, Florida's had this is another game where Florida played ten minutes of a tr- horrendous basketball in the first quarter. Um, played, you know, not great down the stretch with Keontae Johnson off the floor, um, had a whole lot of things go against their way in terms of officiating and those loose balls. And, you know, they lose by five to a really good team. And part of that is really encouraging, but part of that is just still so frustrating. Like, yeah. you know, you were talking about a couple of those calls that um, I didn't agree with. You know, if one or two of those goes, goes Florida's way, absolutely different ball game. Um, you know, I, I, like I was saying, you know, Jalen Hudson took some really bad shots that turned into odd man rushes the other way and, and turned into points. I mean, those are four or five point swings. Well, this game was a five point game. So, uh, just, uh, you know, part of it is encouraging. Part of it is just so frustrating. It just seems like this is the conversation we've had after, uh, after most of their losses. Yeah. I tweeted out five of them from the at Florida BB hour account. And, and I thought, um, obviously, the Hudson three-pointer early in the shot clock, late in the game, that leads to the transition basket. You know, everybody was all over that one, and, and they should be. Um, I really thought that the missed three seconds call that, that led to the Mike White technical foul was, was an immense play in the game. Um, because, you know, it's, it's two free points. Uh, and, and it's hard to blame Mike. Uh, because they had already missed the the double euro step traveling call. Oh my earlier goodness! On the tie, um, which was worse than the three seconds, by the way. But but it, I watched it like you know I, I coached it up and rewound the uh, the play there about three times, and there's just no way that Hayes committed a foul there. Like, I mean, it's either three seconds or nothing. Well, I think that it was kind of one of those. Uh, one of those situations you could even tell in just the, uh, the cadence of how the play went. Um, he, the whistle was blown and then there was a couple seconds of, Oh, I just blew the whistle. Um, but I'm not actually sure what I saw. And then things went to, and that was, I think part of the reason that Mike White didn't know what was going on until later. Cause there wasn't an, uh, you know, there wasn't an assertive foul call. There was a whistle blown and then the ref took a few steps while he was kind of gathering his thoughts. And, um, you know, you, you know, that's and when you see a whistle and a ref doesn't have his hand up immediately, you pro- that's usually a call like a three second or, you know, so, 
it's not a foul usually obviously a you know a fist raised would be a foul so um i think a whole lot of that's uh kind of said what um uh you know that it just wasn't a great call and it definitely wasn't one that i i even feel like the ref was was certain about due to uh his kind of indecision in calling it yeah and, and you know and it looked like it looked like coach white was pretty hot with the uh crew the whole game but you know i don't know how much of that was the game the way the game was called or it, it probably was some of that and some of how things were going for Florida offensively. I thought, you know, Kayvon Allen had a three to take the lead that, that went all the oh. way in the basket around and out. Uh, what if Florida, Florida never led the game, they would have led right there by one. And then, uh, you know, another one that was bad, and I don't want to pick on Kavarius Hayes because I thought he put in another really good shift, actually, especially on defense. But, um, you know, I missed a layup early, and, and it leads to transition basket because – Jalen Hudson doesn't get back defensively. Um, and, you know, that sparks a really big TCU run before halftime, that one play. And it had come after Jalen had gotten a three-point play and hit a three to kind of settle the Gators, I thought. And, um, you know, Florida was down 32-16 at one point, uh, you know, kind of subsequent after. I guess the point I'm making is when you're playing a game that's in the 50s, or you're playing a tough team on the road that defends as well as TCU, you can't miss open layups under the basket. And uh, certainly Florida missed a couple of those, but Hayes seemed the most grievous. Yeah, and even had uh, had a few buckets that are, uh, you know, not he wouldn't normally make. He did have that one straight line drive uh, layup <laughs> on the right side, which I was like, oh, that's uh, that's something I haven't seen. But but like you said, yeah, in, in these tight games Florida's playing, and particular ones in the 50s, um, Unfortunately, this team just isn't good enough offensively to leave uh, to leave some of those at the hoop. And uh, unfortunately, another game where Andrew Nemhart is 0 for 5 from 2. Um, just yeah. couldn't complete. Uh, oh, I actually, I wanted to talk about this. I thought TCU, I, you know, you and me have been talking about this. And I've wondered why no team has done this yet. And TCU is the first team to do it. To just really not overhelp. To really funnel Andrew Nemhart towards the rim. And say, like, and challenge him to score. So that was something that I thought was really interesting that they um, when when a screen came, they didn't uh, they didn't try to deny him to the paint. The the guy who was guarding him um, took the top side, funneled him towards the hoop and stayed glued to his hip. And um, and they didn't overhelp. So there wasn't the easy kind of kickout pass. And they said, yeah, finish at the rim or, um, yeah, make something happen yourself. And he had a couple just bad floaters, um, couldn't finish. And um, I thought that was really, really well scouted by TCU. I've wondered why more teams haven't done that. Um, we're just, um, yeah, funnel him towards the hoop, stay on his hip, don't overhelp, and, and just challenge him to score. And, you know, I hope no other teams don't watch film and don't do that because I want Florida <laughs> to win basketball games. But um, I will say that was, uh, that was some good, good coaching. Yeah, it really was. And, and it was something that teams did a lot to Casey Hill. Right. Um, and I think, you know, and you'd have games like a couple times against Kentucky where Casey would make a bunch of layups and you'd kind of be like, all right. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, Andrew's kind of in that zone right now. And, and you know, obviously he's, he's much bigger and, and, uh, and I think more physical than, than Casey. But, but, uh, you know, I'm not sure that he's, where Casey is defensively, well, not, I'm not sure. He's not where Casey Hill is defensively right now. And, um, you know, he's probably a little bit better of a passer, but I'm not sure it's, it's immense. And, 
And there's just work to do on the offensive side of basketball for Andrew right now, whether it's the flat jump shot or finishing at the rim. And I think if you're a Gator fan, you're probably looking at that. And, and I think you can look at it and say, well, it certainly incentivizes him to come back for a sophomore year, which is what I think he'll do. Um, but, but I actually kind of thought that it was a really good scout. And I'm glad you brought that up because it is a good time maybe to talk about, you know, the fact that there's still limitations to Andrew's game as we approach February of his freshman year that suggests, you know, there's not going to be this Shea Gilgis Alexander jump that, that sends him to the NBA. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm still not ready to say for sure that I think he's coming back uh, just because, you know, as someone who loves the NBA and also loves college basketball, um, production doesn't really always matter to NBA teams drafting. And also right, I think right. people – and I think that oftentimes people really view um, NBA draft prospects in a vacuum and um, not just relative to the class. And if you looked in a vacuum – like if Andrew Nemhart was in last year's draft class, um, I'm not sure he gets drafted. Um, if he's in this year's draft class, I, I think he would get drafted in, in the second round if he declared. Even no matter, like say, say the draft was tomorrow and he decided to declare, I think he would get drafted in the second round. I would say that fairly confidently, to be honest. It's just a really weak draft class. Whether he wants to um, you know, better that and come back and try to be, uh, you know, get picked in the 20s or in the teens or something, um, you know, that's up to him. But um, I just got to remember, like, I, I don't know what Andrew Nemhart's motivations totally are. Maybe he just wants to be a professional basketball player, even if that's the G League or, or overseas. And, um, um, and just relative to, you know, you, you just can't view a, va- a draft prospect because a lot of people are like, look at Andrew Nemhart. He doesn't shoot the ball well enough. He doesn't score well enough. Um, he's got to come back. And, and like in a vacuum, I see what they're saying. But when you look at, um, well, what does the draft class look like? When could he get drafted? How, does, how would that matter to him financially? What are those implications and all that? Um, this might be a, as good of a time as any for him to be in this draft class and not in the draft class next year with, you know, the Scotty Lewis's and Brian Antoine's of the world and, uh, and all that. So um, I, I'm still not ready to say he, uh, he, he's going to come back for sure, but I, I certainly hope he does. And, um, uh, and hopefully he can improve on, on some of those other parts of the game because, I mean, if he's – getting six plus assists per game, but turns into a, a better shooter and a score. Um, that's, that's a really good, that's an elite player. Cause I mean, he's already a, a good solid SEC starter as a freshman. So, um, you know, the, and as someone who reclassified and, and could have been in high school this year still. So um, what he could bring next year would be, uh, would be awesome. Yeah. And I mean, look, I'll play devil's advocate to, to your point um, a little bit, which is that, because um, you mentioned Scotty Lewis and Brian Antoine and, and some of the guys that look like they're for sure one-and-done types. Next season, you know, th- there there's an argument, and it's one that Kyle Tucker at The Athletic has made, that, that playing with those types of players, which Nimhar would have the opportunity to do next year, um, it's kind of like the rising tide lifts all boats thing. And that, you know, the opportunity for, for big game assist numbers – uh, playing next to a player like that uh, can sometimes up the value of your your stock, even to scouts who kind of see what you look like next to comparable NBA talent. Yeah, that totally and, makes and sense. Eric Bledsoe is a guy that, that that was one of the examples that Kyle Tucker used, and, and but there but there are other uh, there have been other you know Kentucky players that, and uh, sadly a lot of those guys have kind of flamed out in the, in the league, um, but they certainly benefited from playing with 
you know, the, the types of guys that they got to play with in the star-studded recruiting classes. So Florida will have, you know, an immense amount of talent on the floor next year, regardless of, of how it all comes together. Right, and I'm sure that's something that him and his family will, will weigh into. And, um, yeah, I hope he comes back. But um, yeah. I, I just think so many people just look at, oh, he can't shoot. Well, uh, that means he's coming back. And it's like, well, that's uh, – that's not uh, that's not so uh, it's not so black and white like that, um, especially when it comes to the way that NBA teams view things, and um, even just uh, just relative to uh, what Andrew's uh, personal kind of um, convictions are and what he wants to do with his career. Yep, absolutely. So, um, kind of back to to what what happened with Florida. I thought another thing I thought because it's a game where Florida really did defend at a high level at least for the last twenty five to thirty minutes. Um, but another game where, and I wanted your kind of insight on this, I felt like Florida, again, struggled with the pick and roll early. Yeah, definitely. Um, what's, uh, what seemed to be kind of most interesting about it was just, um, uh, I, I just wasn't sure exactly what the, um, how you could say, what the, uh, what the motivating factor was in the way that they guarded screen and rolls, just in terms of like, it wasn't like, hey, let's try to, uh, let's try to keep the ball out of the paint. Let's, um. Uh, or hey, let's try to um, let's try to down screen and roll, send him to the baseline, and and kind of rotate. I, I just felt like it was kind of just like a mixed bag of like how they were guarding them, and um, to me, it just kind of made them lack a little bit of identity. Where it's like, hey, sometimes we're going to go under, sometimes we're going to chase over, sometimes we're going to, um, sometimes we're going to blitz it, or obviously we're going to do the switch oftentimes, and um, which in in some ways is good because I kind of liked when teams, um, you know, when you could guard the pick and roll in some different ways and uh, just to kind of keep the offensive players off balance. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I, I think that it probably stemmed from the fact that Florida didn't totally like their chances just switching normally. And I think Florida's played their best pick and roll defense uh, when they've just been switching this year. And uh, uh, when they didn't uh, feel super confident in that, um, I feel like they're probably just not as practiced or not as comfortable in, uh, in guarding other ways. No, that's uh, I think that's a pretty, <laughs> pretty strong explanation for it. And, and I think, um, you know, I heard, I heard a little bit of the, the post game when I was kind of decompressing from mine. And I guess Lee Humphrey said that, that pick and roll defense was the subject of one of Florida's uh, first, it was either the first or second time out. So it's interesting that they're like losing 16 to three. Or, or whatever the score was, and, and Mike White was, was, you know, preaching, hey, we need to defend the pick and roll better. But I think that also, like, some fans might get irritated about that. Like, why aren't you drawing up ways to score? And to me, and I don't know about you, Eric, to me, a lot of that is, like, Mike White just kind of operates under the assumption that this team will struggle to score. He said so. Um, he said that they struggle to score out of a dribble drive, that they're much more set up, you know, set reliant than he wants to be. Uh, that They really need shots to fall. So like he has said in interviews multiple times that this is a team that he knows is going to have these, these moments and these laws where they don't score the ball that well. And, you know, their identity has to be defending, which might be why you spend a couple minutes on pick and roll defense so that a game doesn't get totally out of hand. Well, the way I kind of see it is if this team struggles to score, um, we know that uh, if, if, you know, the game starts in Florida has three points, however many minutes in, um, we know the team struggles to score. There's just nothing you can drop in that moment that's really going to change that. You know, maybe right. you drop one set 
that's um, really masterful once. And, you know, may, and to an extent, hey, yeah, getting one bucket just to kind of kick things off, get some momentum. Yeah, there's value in that for sure. Um, but, I mean, you know, if Florida's struggling to score, it's not like, okay, how about we start running the flex offense? Or, like, hey, let's start running the Princeton <laughs> offense. Let's draw that up quick. And, like, hey, um, you know, Gators on two. Um, it's, but, but when it comes to, uh, when it comes to guarding, uh, when it comes to guarding screen and rolls, there is, you know, in, in a two minute timeout, you can, uh, you can definitely tidy those kinds of things up. Iron Mike Whitehive is going to be, uh, you know, pretty on things like that and say like, oh, why, you know, we can't score. And he's talking about defense still. Um, but yeah, it just, um, you know, the fact of the matter is in that moment, I think that the, the little adjustments you can make to defense would be much more valuable than offense. And I know, um, that's still going to make, you know, that's still kind of unfortunate because, uh, that shows just how big the offensive problem is that there's nothing that can really be said in, in a timeout that's really going to help things um, because of just how much work there really is to be done there. Yeah, no, I, I just wanted to kind of address that because it was one of the things that I saw kind of trending on, uh, on Twitter was, you know, somebody, I guess, again, had gotten a shot of a whiteboard and, and it looked like it was all defense. And I don't know why are they talking about defense? They defend fine. And, and I think but that's one where if you have a coaching hat, right, like you're not going to draw that up. And I'll use this example because, you know, I guess immediately you're an apologist for, for this staff if you defend their actions. So I'll use this one. Last year when, when Jalen Hudson was hitting crossover dribble, step back, fadeaway three-pointers against Kentucky on senior day, which happened, what, well, how many did he hit in that game? Like two or three that were just ridiculous contested jumpers that go in. And John Calipari drew up a zone uh, on a whiteboard at, at halftime. Like, he came out early, drew it up, and just said, this is what we're going to do to get back in the game. Um, and this was at a time where, essentially, Florida had locked down Kentucky's offense to where if, if Shea Gilgis-Alexander couldn't penetrate and, and draw a foul, uh, Kentucky didn't really have a whole lot going on offensively uh, that particular afternoon. So, you know, you could have said the same thing to Cal, but, you know, who would dare do that, I guess? <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I, again, I, 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 do, I do say, again, like, once again, the fact that, um, the, fact that the offense is struggling so much that, that I don't think it can be remedied in a timeout. Um, you know, it is kind of defending the action in the moment, but I, I also do recognize that, of course, that is, uh, that's really where it's at with the offense. That's... Um, uh, there's not a lot that can be said in that moment that's going to make a guy that's going to generate, you know, a, a really good shot for someone, um, especially against the TCU team. That's uh, that's really good. And let's let's give credit where it's due, and also call it like it is. I mean, Florida obviously has to improve offensively. I think we've spent how many podcasts talking about that, but but uh, you know, Florida did generate some baskets off drawn-up plays. And, you know, there's a, in particular a couple of beautiful inbound plays that Florida ran. Uh, against TCU to get baskets, including a huge three by Kayvon Allen um, late in the game. So, you know, I mean, Florida has done some of that. I just think, you know, you're just – that's just what this team is offensively. And, and so much of it has to do with, you know, now Keith Stone has lost for the season, but you got very little from him. Um, as, as a guy who came in, expected to be one of the top two uh, pick-and-pop guys in the, in the SEC – and uh, obviously, we all know where Jalen Hudson is, which is where I want to turn now. Um, okay. Where should uh, I mean? What What do we do? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, uh, that's tough because I, I, he's got to play uh, to an extent, just because 
There's not Florida needs bodies, but um, right. there's there's even part of me that says like I don't know if he does have to play. Um, when you think about um, you know Jalen Hudson's you know six foot five, however many pounds, not big, not. Um, but um, you know once you get to the point of playing that small, what really is the difference between playing Jalen Hudson and and Mike Locaro on the floor? That like that is my kind of thought, and I know a lot of people will probably not like agree with that. But when you're when you are downsizing to the point that that Jalen Hudson is is your power forward, I, I really don't see the difference between um, between six. You know, I see the difference between six foot eight, two thirty, and Jalen Hudson. I don't see a big difference between six foot five Jalen Hudson and six foot three Mike Locaro. Like once by the time you're playing that small. I honestly think you, you, you pretty much should throw whatever size metric you have out the window and you've got to play your better guys. And right now, Jalen Hudson is, is just not one of your better guys. Yeah, um, the, I'm sorry. So, uh, actually, yeah, I'll just, just like the thought of even um, uh, he's uh, did he like did he even um, did he get a rebound in 19 minutes? No, he did not against TCU. Right. So he's out there as a guy. Um, so anyone who's like, oh, well, like, you know, you still need to have, he's, you know, one of your next bigger guys. So he's got to play the four. Well, he's not rebounding. Um, if he's guarding in the post, you're probably going to have to double regardless. So whether he's, you know, whether he's the primary ball like defender there or DeAndre Ballard is, you're still kind of defending the same way. So um, I, I just don't, I, I almost even, you know, the first, my the first thought was like, oh, well, he's just got to play because Florida needs bodies. But, you know, as I, as I kind of think through it, I don't even think he, he needs to play necessarily just because you're already downsizing so much. It's not like he's, you know, rebounding any – like, you know, I think if you played Michael Okaru more minutes or, um, you know, DeAndre Ballard more minutes, um, I, I bet they're, you know, they're not going to do any worse than zero rebounds in 19 minutes. So anything about that size is just kind of whatever. So I, I, I just not sure what you do with them. Like, I, I you know, there's still – there's still the op- the chance that he comes out and explodes offensively, but um, so maybe you keep that dream alive by still playing him somewhat and not just totally yanking him. But uh, yeah, I'm not really sure. Yeah, I wouldn't play him. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I just wouldn't. I I look, Mike Okaru um, is a guy that we've also talked about some on this show, and and I think uh, a guy that we think defends uh, at a pretty high level and. I just think you've collapsed your identity to we're going to be really good at defense. And, yeah, that's who I'd give the minutes to. And I understand that, that Mike is, is a limited guy offensively. But what I'll say about Mike is, you know, you don't – I can think of maybe one jump shot he's taken this year where I thought that was a stupid shot. So he tends to shoot when he's open, um, which is what you want, you know, a, a mediocre to poor shooter to do um, if they're going to shoot. Uh, I know he doesn't score. And, you know, look, I, the time for reflecting on whether Michael Okaru is a guy that sticks in the program, because we've talked about that. Um, that all comes in the offseason. Right now your job is to get the most out of this team you can. And I think in order to do that, you know, starting Wednesday with a really good guard team in Ole Miss, it's tough to guard. You know, I don't, I don't see the benefit in playing Jalen Hudson against, say, in Ole Miss because he's just a liability defensively. And they're going to score some, so you don't want to waste offensive possessions. And you certainly don't want to take bad shots and let their guards get out in transition. And I just feel like Mike, like Okaru kind of insulates you from that. Yeah, I just think if I, if I like, took some of my NBA friends or something that don't know a thing about college basketball, 
and I showed him um, Jalen Hudson's offensive numbers and his offensive efficiency and showed how many minutes he was playing, I think they would be like, wow, that guy must be one heck of a defender to get in the game that much. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, that's obviously just not the case. So um, I just think he doesn't bring you any value. And, and um, you know, maybe, maybe and I, I don't know this, um, you know, maybe, maybe his teammates really, really like him, really, really respect him. Um, it seems like, you know, he takes a tough shot and misses it. It still seems like his teammates, you know, like, hey, that's, you know, next one's going to fall. Like, they kind of encourage him. And, and so it's, so I would say he's, I would venture to say he's probably quite well liked. But um, he's, right now, it's just, um, he, he's not a guy that's going to contribute to winning just because he's a negative on both sides of the floor. And um, I'm not sure if whatever intangible nature he might have from his leadership overcomes that. And uh, it also kind of, you know, I'm not ready to wave the white flag on this season. That would be foolish. But at the same time, um, it's probably more, if you're going to have a guy who's going to be a negative, I would rather have, uh, you know, a sophomore in, in Mike Locaro out there getting, getting runs than, um, you know, than a redshirt senior who's, uh, who's a net negative on both those sides, because at least, you know, a young guy is probably going to improve more and you might have him kind of in the upcoming season. So um, I, I, I wouldn't have Jalen Hudson. Obviously he's not starting. I really wouldn't have him kind of as one of the first guys off the bench. I would, uh, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to see him maybe play 10 or 11 or 12 minutes and, and maybe he catches fire and you play him more, but um, I, I wouldn't really like to see him as the sixth man here. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I mean, I think we're on the same page here. Look, he, he's at 29.8% of, of Florida shots when he's on the floor. That's way too high. By the way, that's in the top 100 national. So <laughs> it just shouldn't be that. And, and the coaches, they've got you know, to do a better job of, of getting that message through. And if they can't get that message through to the guy when he's on the floor, then they've got to keep him off the floor. Because this is um, a team that, that I think has a chance to go to the NCAA tournament, which is why I want to talk about uh, or kind of move to, to listener questions. Dominique Rivoto asked Eric, if two and two in the next four is a must to get to the NCAA tournament. Okay. Let's take a look at the schedule. Um, two and two is a must. Um, well, uh, if you, uh, let's just say they didn't, let's say they went one and three, let's say they um, beat Mississippi and then lost to Kentucky, Auburn and Tennessee, which would be the, uh, the three more kind of more difficult games. Um, but after that, like just, you know, we're still speaking very hypothetically. If they were to beat Vanderbilt, Alabama, then LSU, you know, LSU on the road, Alabama's on the road too. And, and then, um, you know, run through Missouri and Vanderbilt again, that kind of like weaker part of the schedule. And they've, you know, they get, they can rattle off six or seven in a row and then, you know, get a little bit better standing in the SEC tournament with a couple games. I, I think they could still get in. So I'm not quite ready to say that it's, um, that it's do or die for these next, you know, to go two or two in these two and two in the next four games. But I mean, at the same time, like I said, um, this situation in which they go one and three and still make the tournament probably involves them winning five or six or seven in a row. And that would be a pretty tall task against any, uh, any SEC competition. So for that reason, I will say, um, Oh, you know, I, I won't say it's, they, they absolutely won't if they don't go two and two. Um, but, uh, but oh man, it would be tough. So I've got a similar answer to Dominic's question that, that you do, which is just that the, the way I look at it is seven and five. Um, yeah, seven and five um, instead of two and two. So if Florida 
goes one and three, then that means six and two is how they have to finish in my mind. Like I think, I think this team, because they left things on the table out of conference, um, they need to finish 10 and eight to make the, in, in the SEC to make the NCAA tournament. I don't care how they do that. Um, because if they do that, there, there's not a scenario where you can write down seven and five and they don't have a quality win. Um, or a couple quality wins, right? Uh, so, so I think quality wins are out there in their league, um, but I think they're going to need a winning record. If they, if they enter the SEC tournament 8 and 10, I think it's an NIT team. If they enter the SEC tournament, unless they win the tournament, which they won't do. Um, if they enter the SEC tournament 9 and 9, then, yeah, I mean, it's going to depend on your seed. And they're probably going to have to play on the weekend again in the NCAA tournament and just kind of wait for – you know, other bubbles to burst. Um, so I think their best way into the tournament is to go 10 and 8 in the league and win a game in Nashville. Uh, if you go 10 and 8 in the league and lose your first game in Nashville, which Florida has done every year under Mike White, um, you know, then you're really at the mercy of, of last impressions, which I hate being when you're on the bubble. Um, so that's my answer. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know the answer to this. I, someone who's listening to this who might be uh... – a more experienced Gator fan than me. Um, I, I might know the answer, but, you know, do you think Florida has ever, um, like, not been in the position for an at-large bid, but then won the NCAA tournament – or, sorry, the SEC tournament to make the NCAA tournament? Do you think that's ever happened? No, no. Florida's <laughs> – and the reason that that's never happened is, is that Florida's number of – Florida has been to the SEC tournament final, um, you know, a number of times, and I don't, I don't remember what the total number is. But, but they've only actually won the Southeastern Conference Basketball Tournament four times. Right. That's what so, I was thinking. But, and obviously, you know, Florida's, uh, Florida's recent uh, uh, struggles in the SEC tournament um, under the Mike White era does not make me think that uh, this team has a great chance of doing it. <laughs> but, uh, hey, wouldn't that be something if we just, you know, definitely did not go 7-5 and five in the next, uh, next 12 games, but then somehow went on a run to win the SEC tournament? That would uh, be something. Yeah. But I would say that is very unlikely. Right. I mean, I think that, you know, the most comparable, um, the most comparable team to this one in terms of just living on the bubble was either Mike White's first team, which really only had the one quality win and got ushered off to the NIT as a result. And no one really argued with that. Um, And then, you know, Billy Donovan's first team that got back in after the NCAA championship year. So they have the two years of NIT and then they snuck in, last four in, um, with Kenny Boyden and the young team. And, and they lost a great game, actually, a double overtime game to Jimmer for that in BYU. Uh, so, so that Florida team got in. Um, and a lot of people didn't think they belonged. But it was weird because that team basically got in because they beat a really good NC State team on the road. And the way they won that game was Chandler Parsons hitting like a three-quarter court shot. Yeah, that's funny how that works. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, <laughs> but like know. on a on a resume, like nobody cared, but that's how they won the game, right? They won. Right, and I mean that's what is so different, and that's why um, you know you and me love uh, love the advanced metrics because um, you know a, a game that comes right down to the wire when someone takes a three quarter court heave, um, you know the metrics aren't going to discriminate much whether that shot goes in or out, and that is why um, yeah, that's why some of these metrics are always a little more. Uh, a little more accurate than sometimes even these resumes look just because of the way the ball bounces. For what it's worth, Dominic, uh, to kind of wrap up his question before we move on to the next one, 
Ken Palm right now projects that Florida will finish 10 and 8 in the league, which is what I think they have to do to, to get into the NCAA tournament. Um, just one more Ken Palm note, and then um, then uh, we don't have to discuss this very much. But, uh, <laughs> but um, just uh, one interesting note was um, how different the AP poll rankings that really don't mean anything are versus, the, versus something like Ken Palm, where it's like, you know, that like 24-22 matchup of Ole Miss and, and Iowa State in the SEC Big 12 cha- uh, Challenge, where Iowa State just absolutely dominated Ole Miss. Um, you know, it's uh, in Ken Palm, Iowa State is 12th and Ole Miss is forty. So, uh, right, and, and you right. know that, and that was a lot more p- properly reflected in their matchup than the fact that they were both in the twenties of the AP poll. So, uh, yeah, just another win for metrics and another reminder that the AP poll, even though the fans just absolutely love it, is not great. <laughs> um, Drew Helmich asks thoughts on Stokes needing more minutes uh, to maybe add an offensive post presence. Can't sacrifice winning to hope Hudson gets hot. Ooh. Hey, Drew, thanks for the question. Um, the thing about uh, the offensive presence thing is I, I just don't know how great of an offensive presence uh, Stokes has been when he's been in the game. Um, I just, you know, we kind of talked on the last podcast just a little bit about how it's not like he hasn't really had many, many strong offensive games. And I know that that's a lot to do with the fact he just, you know, hasn't gotten a ton of minutes. But um, to me, the case for playing Stokes would almost be from uh, and again, I don't want to wave the white flag for the season because I'm far from that point, um, but would be a little bit of the developmental kind of side of things where it's like, uh, you know, if Florida is going to lose games right now, um, you know, if they're going to lose to TCU, I'd probably rather have it with, um, you know, Isaiah Stokes playing 19 minutes than Jalen Hudson playing 19 minutes. Um, and uh, I, I think that, um, uh, yeah, I'm just not totally sure that um, that Isaiah Stokes contributes in, in like a ton of great ways to winning right now, but Hey, you could get him out there and get to get him that experience. Um, one thing that um, I, I Stokes has really been, uh, you, you kind of think he would add value in, but he hasn't is in rebounding. He hasn't been a really good rebounder at all. He's actually been, uh, been quite poor. Like according to Ken Palm's kind of uh, rebounding, like rebounding rate, he's, he only gets 12.8% of defensive rebounds which is, um, you know, well below Keontae Johnson, um, well below Keith Stone even when he was playing, uh, well below, below Kavarius Hayes. And, um, yeah, just uh, it's, it's actually, well, look at this. His defensive rebounding rate is 0.8% better than Jalen Hudson's. So he is, you know, that's, uh, he's in the Jalen Hudson realm of defensive rebounding. So um, for someone that big who is not <laughs> going to be um, not going to, you know, he's going to get exposed defensively, which has happened when he last got in the game. Um, you know, he's got to contribute offensively. Um, he hasn't been great offensively. And I think he's really got to at least rebound the ball at an average, you know, uh, at an average rate for a big man. Um, if not a little bit better, you'd hope for someone of that frame from the defensive rebounding side. Oh, and I should also note um, offensive rebounding. He's um, hardly done this year. Just uh, really not good offensive rebounder. So, um, you know, I, I'm just not sure that that's kind of one of the reasons Florida's had to play small is because, uh, Stokes just really hasn't had a very good season in, in a lot of areas of the game that you'd hope he'd be better in. Yeah, yeah. Um, pretty pretty good stuff, I think, right there on the Isaiah Stokes question. Um, let's see. Yep, we have uh, – <laughs> it's kind of overlap, but I don't want to leave anybody out because these are the listener questions we have. And, um, yeah, there we go. So, uh, 
Sarah says, it looks like Florida shot a lot more free throws last year, or at least feels that way. Um, why can't the Gators get to the free throw line? Oh, why? Do, yeah, I think you've got to get in the paint to uh, to get fouled. Usually, is, uh, <laughs> is a little bit of uh, and um, you know I don't even think that uh, that the Gators got to the free throw line a, a ton last year, um, just because once again they were they're you know pretty reliant on the jump shot and and of course even more so this year. So uh, I, that's just kind of the answer. Um, you, you know the the rate that you're going to get fouled um, shooting jump shots is just not very high. So obviously Florida takes a lot of jump shots and. Um, they just don't get the ball in the paint very often. So, and I, and I mean that both from a, not just the post-up kind of standpoint, but even for just from driving the basketball where most of your, most of your foul calls will come from. So um, that just kind of um, is, is another kind of, uh, you know, for people who are critical of the jump shot reliance offense, this would be another reason that, uh, yeah, that maybe you don't want to shoot tons of jump shots just because you, uh, yeah, you don't get fouled very often. So, uh, I just, um, you know, I look at the foul total sometimes and obviously Florida's uh, opponent hasn't committed a lot to a lot of times I look, but a lot of times it's like, Hey, when, when would Florida get fouled when they, um, come up the floor, run a pin down screen, that guy gets the ball and, and shoots a three. There's just not a lot of room there for, uh, for it, for someone to want to, or need to commit a foul. Yeah. I would say Sarah, that help is on the way. Um, that I think, I think Florida has two guys, uh, one who I just saw over the weekend um, in Trey Mann and another one in Scotty Lewis, who I think will help Florida get to the free throw line uh, an actual high amount next season. I also think Keontae Johnson is a guy who, as his career progresses, will become Casey Prather-like in uh, his ability to drive and shoot free throws. Um, but yeah, Florida, Florida was a little better at it last year because Chris Chioza was pretty good at getting fouled. Um, and, and Chioza would do it in, as Eric knows, in kind of creative ways. Uh, like he just like, Chris was kind of masterful at leaning into contact. And, you know, he, he would get a lot of calls for somebody that's pretty small, kind of just a small, heady guard. And obviously I think Florida got to the line a little more last year because Jalen Hudson had a good season. Um, yes. But, 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 I mean, none of that stuff uh, necessarily, you know, it wasn't like Florida had a, had a, a ton of length last year while they waited on Johnny Bunu to never come back. Right. I mean, Igor Kulachov, all six foot four of him in, in heels uh, was playing the four. So <laughs> most of the time, um, so the Gators, you know, I guess they shot more free throws last year, but, but that's, that's not saying a whole lot. I don't think. Yeah. And they, they played a little more in transition too. Um, another thing for people who don't like uh, Florida's lack of transition play, uh, uh, that this is another thing that um, would be nice about running a little more in transition is that that's another place where fouls get committed at a really high rate. And yeah, when you don't, uh, don't play a ton of transition, that takes away a lot of the foul opportunities too. Um, Florida uh, last question is uh, from Elizabeth in Miami. Um, and Elizabeth says, I've been going to Florida Gators basketball games for 25 years. Love the show. Thank you. Um, for giving this program attention. How much do you think the McDonald's All-Americans will help the program from a chemistry standpoint? It seems like maybe there's something there with this team too, or not there. Ooh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I personally find it a little challenging to talk chemistry from a personality standpoint, just because, you know what, I'm, I'm not, in the, not in the locker room right, now. Right. And so, so from a personality standpoint, um, I feel a little weird commenting, though I will say that every time I hear Scotty Lewis talk, I just think he's a brilliant young man. And I just feel like, uh, 
yeah, I just feel like there's no way a guy like that can, can do anything, but really, really help your culture. So um, I think he's going to be just awesome for the team chemistry from a like, kind of a personality standpoint, but I will, you know, say it with the caveat of, I really don't know, but I know he's a lot louder on the floor than a lot of the Gators are right now. Um, but from a, uh, you know, you know what you and me can talk about Neil is the, uh, the on the court chemistry. And I think that's um, just like you kind of mentioned, Scotty Lewis and Trey Mann provide a whole lot of things to the mix that um, the team really doesn't have right now. As um, you know, Scotty Lewis, a guy that can really, really get the ball into the paint, someone we don't have from the perimeter right now, someone who can get those straight line drives. And then a Trey Mann, a guy who can either, you know, he can be a, he can be your point guard and your primary ball handler, but um, he doesn't have to just pass the ball to be effective like Nemart. He can go get his own shot. So, um, uh, you know, two guys that can really score off the dribble and in a couple different ways. And that's the, that's what this team lacks the most. And therefore I think the on the court chemistry will be, uh, will be great. I think it'll fit really well. So um, what do you think, Neil? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I like Eric's answer a lot in, in terms of, you know, character chemistry stuff. I can't really speak to that because I'm not in the locker room. I'm not at practice and I'm not going to, I don't, that's one part of like hot take culture that actually bothers me. Maybe it's I agree. just because I, maybe it's because I coach, but like, I can't, I can't get into that. What I can say is what I've heard from the coaches and in interviews that this is a team that kind of lacks, um, I don't want to say lax it. There's not enough vocal leadership on this team. And I think Kayvon Allen tries real hard to be a senior leader, but it's not necessarily his personality. And um, Kavarius Hayes is a leader, but, you know, sometimes it's hard to be a leader when there's so much of your game to focus on. And I, I, I mean that with as somebody who actually defends him as Eric sees <laughs> on Twitter and on the show a lot. I think he's an incredible defensive basketball player um, at the college level. Uh, so I think I think Florida does add something to that with Scotty Lewis. I think he's a guy who will come in and command the respect of his teammates right away. But the other guy I'd mentioned, we haven't talked about Omar Payne. I think Omar Payne is is um, quieter and more shy, um, and that's okay too. Uh, you know, but certainly he provides something on the basketball floor that, that Florida will certainly appreciate in terms of a post presence, and uh, and I think. Uh, you know, Trey Mann is, is kind of the one that I think a lot of people have kind of slept on because people got so excited with the Scotty Lewis commitment, as they should have, that they forget that, you know, there were, there were two guys whose stock kind of on the recruiting circles exploded over the summer. Uh, one was Trey Mann and one was T.J. Walker, right? And, and, and Mann uh, got the fifth star, and, and uh, he's, he's what, what we coaches call a dog, um, yeah, he just he's just a fierce competitor. And um he's a he's a give me the ball guy. And I don't know, like so I think Florida really uh really needs that and, and I think man will give them uh that and I think that they're they're developing that with Noah Lock. So long winded answer. But yeah, I mean I think I think personality wise, maybe Mike White has something with these two classes and that's without even you know, offering more praise for Keontae Johnson than we usually do. Right. And um, yeah, just the one last thing I'll say is just um, right now for Florida at the end of a tight game, there aren't a lot of guys that you really feel comfortable with the ball in their hands. And um, that's what I think this team needs. And I could see Trey Mann and Scotty Lewis, both as guys that you would really want with the ball in their hands at the end of the game. So that's, uh, that's why I think that they're really healthy chemistry. Yep. I would agree with that. So let's talk about Ole Miss, um, a team that, 
uh, four shows ago, uh, Eric Nostradamus Fawcett said, man, the metrics and the computers just don't say they're as good as they are. And now they've come back to earth um, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> really? Just as Eric, just as, just as Eric predicted they would. Um, <laughs> really, think, really uh, Nostradamus is, is Ken Palm, really. I'm just the, uh, you know. You're just I'm like, just the follower just like, of the uh, yeah, <laughs> the follower of the great <laughs> teachings of uh, of Ken Bob. <laughs> You're just his chosen instrument on earth. Yes, <laughs> uh, <laughs> to to deliver the good news. Uh, so, Ole Miss really good guards, um, a roster that I think was better than everybody kind of thought it was. They just kind of need a new leadership voice. I know we both have a ton of respect for their head coach. They don't defend great. Um, kind of give us your scout. Yeah, I think that that was a pretty good, uh, pretty good rundown of just the way that their guards are, are just um, – this is one thing that I was definitely a victim of, of thinking like, hey, um, you know, the, I, I, I didn't think this Ole Miss team would be very good. But then I look back at it now and, um, and I'm just like, man, why didn't I think they'd be very good? Because I think Terrence Davis is really good. I think Brian Tyree is pretty good. And I think Javante Schuler is really good. So, I mean, when you've got guards in college basketball – there's like a base level of like when you, when your guard plays at a high level, there's like, there's only, you, you just won't drop to the bottom of a conference. That's just kind of the way things are. It's, and um, I, I really like their guards, just like you said. So uh, they've been able to score. Um, they've been able to just um, kind of uh, outrun teams a little bit and, um, and just uh, make, you know, they made the last shot and they won. And uh, sometimes, you know, that's why, that's why I would say was a really tough matchup for them because, um, I yeah. would say kind of does the same thing, but the guards are probably a little bit better. So, um, and a little more, you know, a little more experienced with Shayok. And um, so uh, I would say it was a, a really fun matchup for Ole Miss, but not a good matchup for Ole Miss. Uh, fun from a, uh, uh, from a viewer standpoint, but um, yeah, you also saw that um, you also saw that they got, um, they got really defended really well by, uh, by Alabama. Um, that's because yeah, they lost two straight. They lost to Iowa State on the weekend. And before that lost to Alabama, um, which I'm actually, I didn't watch that game. And I think I'm going to before I, uh, before I write my preview for Gator country. Cause I'm curious to see what Alabama did, but um, I think that, uh, yeah, that 53 point total from, uh, from Ole Miss was by far kind of their lowest uh, or, you know, probably the, I think it was their lowest year, the Cincinnati. I know they lost pretty bad too, but um, yeah. And I, I think that, um, you know, maybe there's something there in, in how they, uh, they can be defended. But um, I also remember that, um, you know, when we played them last year, it was, uh, it was Bruce Stevens who just really dominated them uh, down low. And now he's a senior. So I think that'll be a, that'll be a concerning matchup for them. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good rundown of, of, of Ole Miss. Um, I would say, um, you know, Terrence Davis is a guy who, who has pretty nationally high uh, scoring numbers um, in, in, another guy that commands a lot of shots. Their guards, their starting guards, Breon Tyree and Terrence Davis command 54% of their shots uh, when they're on the floor. So there's a pretty good chance that one of those two guys is the guy that's going to put it up. Um, I think either one of them, uh, historically, either one of them have struggled a little bit with Kayvon Allen. Uh, and I think we'll continue to do that. Although, um, you know, that Florida has sometimes – Mike White has sometimes allowed one Ole Miss guard to be the dominant scorer and decided that he'll shut down another one. That's been the strategy in the last two years at least, I think, if you look back at the box scores. Um, 
And I don't know how much of that is that's what Andy Kennedy decided was happening to or how Kermit Davis will respond to that. But I think that's something to, to kind of look out for. One thing I'll say that really favors Florida in this game is that didn't favor Florida in the TCU game is that Ole Miss is not good defending the three-point line, 276 nationally in three-point percentage defense. Um, that's, that's not a real good number when you're about to play the Gators in, in the Odom. Oh, I also I've also got a take from uh, watching um, uh, watching uh, Ole Miss play uh, play Iowa State. So I remember watching uh, Kermit Davis uh, coach it at uh, Middle Tennessee, and they did play a good amounts of one three one defense, um, but they did it kind of the more traditional, um, just kind of half court one three one. So uh, then you know I'm watching them play Iowa State on the weekends, and uh, and they really extended out to center and. Um, they forced a ball reversal and, the, and the, the ball went into the corner and then they, they matched up. And I was just like, oh, that is, uh, that is Mike White's uh, one through one defense right there. And uh, they played that one through one kind of half court uh, trap falling back into man, literally identical to the way that Florida did. And as someone who watched, um, as someone who watched Middle Tennessee State a good handful of times over the last um, few years where they played just the kind of traditional one through one, um, I, I, it made me think that, uh, that, that uh, Kermit Davis has, uh, has been. Uh, been looking ahead and been looking doing his scouting work on the SEC, and uh, it makes me think that they'll be ready for Florida's defense. And uh, uh, that that's uh, that's kind of interesting to see too, because uh, when we played Texas A and M, um, you know, you and me were really complimentary of uh, the way that Billy Kennedy kind of seemed to have a scout in place. And um, you know, I thought, uh, you know, I also think we thought that uh, that's uh, that uh, TCU and Jamie Dixon they, they really seemed like they had their scout in place. And um, I, I think that we're going to see another really good scout team from uh, from a really good coach in Kermit Davis. Yeah, no, they'll be ready to play. Um, they have, uh, you know, they they have some common opponents with Florida. They they beat Miss State um, in Starkville. Florida lost to Miss State in Starkville. Uh, they lost to Butler and didn't get a rematch. Um, but that game was at Hinkle, um, where where Butler plays and where Hoosiers was filmed. Uh, and they beat Florida Gulf Coast uh, by twenty, or sorry, by thirty. Florida beat Florida Gulf Coast by twenty. Um, so pretty decisive victories for both teams in those games. But the Rebels have lost three or four. Um, and in three of those games, they've given up 80-plus points. Uh, they're a team that, that needs to score around 80 points um, to, to win games. In fact, in, in every game that they've lost this year, uh, they've scored – most they've scored in the loss was 76 against Butler when they allowed 83. But uh, – they also had 73 against Iowa State, but that, that's kind of instructive. That Their defense is going to give up some points. Um, their lone win this year when they haven't scored 70 was against Southeastern Louisiana, uh, which they won 69-47. So kind of, uh, kind of tells you what they want to do. And um, certainly another chance for Florida to, to get a win that will go on the resume as a good win. Well, you know what? If Florida were to uh... – were to win this one, I think that that honestly might be their best win of the season from a resume standpoint, to be honest, if I look at it quickly. Because, um, yeah, yeah, to be honest, yeah, that looks like it would be uh, – that looks like that might be their best win on the resume, yeah, which is a crazy thought that the uh, unranked Ole Miss uh, team that's currently 40th in Ken Palm um, at home at Florida might be uh, their biggest resume win so <laughs> far. But, hey, uh, I think it's just, uh, you know, wins are, wins are wins, and this is a team that needs them. And uh, – uh, I think that um, you know playing this game at home hopefully means some of those shots will fall for the Gators and um, because the fact that you know what Florida's kept some really good teams under seventy and I think that they could keep uh, keep Ole Miss under seventy 
Um, I think that just the problem comes that if it's a tight game and it's, this is kind of coming down to the wire, I think I like, um, you know, I think I like Terrence Davis and Brian Tyree to make plays a little bit more than I, than I like the Gators uh, backcourt right now. So uh, that could be the difference if this one stays tight. Yeah, no, no doubt. And, 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 you know, yeah, I think it would be Florida's best win. Obviously a lot of us were, were hoping that, uh, that Arkansas would find a way to grind that one out at Texas Tech Saturday night. Right. Um, and they were just a, a couple Daniel Gafford touches down low. Uh, sure. You know, so <laughs> I don't know uh, why, why Arkansas refuses to pass in the ball and in important situations, but that conversation is for another day. Um, so that's that's it. We'll be back after Florida's uh, game against Ole Miss to preview Kentucky. And, um, you know, everybody, obviously, uh, another sold-out uh, Odom with, with the top five uh, Wildcats heading down Saturday. Yeah, that's going to be a fun one. And, uh, hey, you know, Florida wins at Ole Miss and then beats Kentucky. Uh, you know, we're probably uh, the tune of this. Uh, this uh, the conversation on the Gators is probably a lot different. So, yeah, probably, to know for it. probably back in a bunch of brackets. So. I, oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's uh, right now staring down first four out in most people's brackets. So um, it's it's amazing that they're even there, considering uh, everything this team has been through. But thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe. Um, on iTunes, give us a rating and please keep sending in listener questions. Uh, we really appreciate it.